Good morning. Welcome to this uh, episode of Sunday Morning Live. This is your host, Aaron Tomlinson. Today I want to talk about something a little bit different. For me, I want to talk about uh, spiritual experiences, supernatural experiences where people encounter or claim to encounter non-physical entities. So I want to talk about non-physical entities, what or who is out there. So that's going to be my topic for today. I'm going to uh, be very chill today. I'm going to wait and uh, see if anybody jumps on. I'm running a little bit late this morning. Um, woke up late this morning, let myself sleep in a little bit. Uh, so that's the hat. Um, <laughs> I think we'll have fun with this topic this morning, but I want to uh, I want to preface it with this. I am not, I'm just thinking out loud today. This is one of those days where I don't have a lot of uh, structure to my thoughts. I have a topic. I want to talk about what or who's out there in terms of non-physical entities. But I also realized that I've got a audience that's at very diff- different places. I've got some atheists on here. I have some people that are still Christians. I have people that are into other types of spiritual paths. And I appreciate every single one of you. So I just want to be clear before I start that the views that I'm going to share are my own and they are evolving views. <clears throat> so I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything. I'm not trying to say that I've got it figured out and this is the way it is and you should think and believe like me. So I would appreciate the same courtesy on this topic for people that are in the chat. Um and comments and things like that. But again, I'm just uh, sharing my thoughts where I'm at today. <laughs> where I'm at today, my thoughts on it today, doing it very spontaneously. And uh, just trying to share with fellow travelers along the way as we wrestle with these things and try to figure some of these things out. So that's the deal this morning. So anyway, hope everybody's doing well. Wherever you're at, I see a few people are starting to jump on. I appreciate everybody for watching. So, I'm not sure exactly where to start this. Let's start it with this. So, been going through deconstruction process. And I don't want to keep beating the deconstruction drum. I want to keep focusing on that too much. But I want to acknowledge it. I want to recognize that um, I'm not where I was <laughs> a few years ago. But my experiences that I had several year, years ago is still informing my thinking and still informing my worldview. One of the things that I've done recently is get more into understanding philosophy. I think if I had it to do over, maybe instead of... Uh, initially getting degrees in theology that I much would have rather uh, pursued philosophy as a academic study rather than being autodidactic with it or self-taught with it. Um, I think I would have rather pursued that. So we're going to get into that a little bit. We're going to get into how our philosophical views shape the way that we see the world and then, you know, 
look at how, when it comes to the nature of reality, we are still operating on a set of presuppositions or we're operating on a set of assumptions. And the problem is when we assume that our assumptions are real or we assume that our assumptions are accurate or that our assumptions are the way the world actually is. And so then we try to force those assumptions into our view of reality or we try to force reality into our assumptions. So that becomes how we think about it. And then we can become extremely dogmatic about those assumptions. And there's there are lots of reasons. Well, there are a lot of psychological reasons, even subconscious psychological reasons why we force things into our particular philosophy because there's more to it than just, you know, we've become enlightened because we finally found the right philosophy and the right way to think about life. So let's talk about what philosophy is. Um, at a very basic level, if you, if you just break down the word philo means love of something and Osophy or Sophie, Sophia has to do with wisdom. So at a very basic etymological level, the word philosophy means the love of wisdom. But if you look at the academic definition or even the dictionary definition of philosophy, it is the study of knowledge about the fundamental nature of reality. I'm going to say that again. It's the philosophy or study about the fundamental nature of reality. So we all have a philosophy. Most of us didn't get to choose it, though. For most of us, we are going to adopt the philosophy of the culture and the world and the groups around us that we interact with. In other words, they're going to shape our fundamental paradigm for the way that we see reality. So whatever, so all of us have a philosophy, whether we realize it or not. If we don't realize the philosophy that we're coming from, then we're unconscious to it, which means we've, to a certain degree, been programmed into it or we've been indoctrinated into it, like I said, by the world around us. But it's really important to understand that whatever our basic philosophy is, because philosophy can, you know, you can think about it like a garden. (laughs) It can have a lot of different plants and bushes and shrubs and trees and whatever in it to go off in a lot of different directions. Philosophy can talk about ethics, can talk about um, politics. Certainly Plato's Republic talks about how a society should be structured. But underlying all of that, or the ground you could say in this garden, is our basic philosophy, our basic understanding or beliefs about the fundamental nature of reality. What's out there? What is this that we are experiencing? And then that becomes our top governing frame. In other words, whatever our basic beliefs are about philosophy, and then depending on how certain we are about the philosophy that we've embraced, we will have to squeeze every experience because at the end of the day, that's what we're all having. We're all having experiences. And so whatever we experience, we'll have to take and frame it or fit it into our governing philosophical view, our most basic philosophical view. I'll give you some examples of this. And this has really happened in the scientific community. This has happened in the academic community. Uh, so our research today 
in any area, in any field of study, is governed by a philosophical metaphysical worldview called materialism. Now, most people don't realize this. And when I'm talking about materialism, I'm not talking about like the love of money. I'm not talking about having a lot of things. I'm talking about a philosophy that is rooted at least as early as ancient Greece. There were ancient Greek philosophers trying to figure out the nature of reality, and they came up with a philosophical system called materialism. And going all the way back to ancient Greece, these philosophers had even proposed the idea of atoms or of subatomic particles that make up the world. So materialism, the philosophy of materialism is basically this. The world is entirely made up of matter. It's the matter that matters. Or at least matter is the very basic and fundamental nature of reality. So what that says is everything that's out there is just uh, particles. It's uh, bits, building blocks. You can think of it like bricks, right? So my table, my computer, my cup is made up of these tiny little bricks or particles inside that now we call or know as atoms, right? And everything exists in some type of a mathematical equation. So everything is particles or everything is a field or everything is has some sort of measurable quantity to it. It has weight. It has speed. If it exists in time and space at all, it can be measured. And so then the entirety of our existence from that basic assumption can be completely quantifiable using mathematical principles or using math to come up with the solutions or the understanding of what's out there. Now that is in it really in the, I would say mid 20th century, although starting back in the 19th century, <laughs> I just saw Shannon Morris's comment, get your woo-woo on, makes my head hurt. <laughs> I love it. So basically the idea then is that that's all that there is. And this became the predominant paradigm, the predominant philosophy that Western culture began to work out of and gave us what we know as scientific materialism. So one of the best examples of scientific materialism and how these assumptions operate and how you squeeze them into this paradigm is, uh, oh, who's the guy? I had it on the top of my head when I started this. Um, give me one second. I'm just going to look this up while I'm talking. <clears throat> Again, I'm not like super souped up on energy. I'm not highly caffeinated this morning. Uh it's a guy that, uh, he's a science fiction writer. Yeah, Arthur C. Clarke. Arthur C. Clarke is famous for this saying. He says, magic is just science that we don't understand yet. Magic is just science that we don't understand yet. So in other words, if there are things that seem to violate the laws of physics or our understanding of the laws of physics, what we call paranormal activity, what we call extra physical activity, supernatural activity, 
then there is a physical, there's a, a, a explanation for it within the laws of physics. There's a science there to it, and we just haven't discovered the science of it yet. That's a perfect example of evaluating a phenomenon that we may not be able to explain or have a scientific explanation for it, but yet have such certainty in materialism that we know for sure we're eventually going to be able to quantify it. For sure, eventually, scientific materialism is going to be able to solve the problem for us, going to be able to answer the question. Now, materialism is very attractive to people who maybe have been burnt by religion, um, they're deconstructing, whatever, but sometimes out of bitterness, and sometimes this bitterness is subconscious. Uh, materialism becomes a very convenient, very attractive philosophical way of looking at things because it allows us to do away with God, essentially, or worrying about any kind of God. There, there are a lot of uh, problems just psychologically and emotionally that materialism solves for us or solves for people because if matter is all that there is, and again, I want to emphasize in materialism, matter is all that there is. So everything is a mathematical arrangement of matter or energy or fields, things out there that are observable and quantifiable. And then... Everything else has to originate or grow out from that. There can't be anything else because there isn't anything else. There's only materialism. There's only matter. Nothing else exists. So if only matter exists, if only the universe exists, then certainly God does not exist. And certainly angels do not exist. And certainly the devil does not exist. And certainly demons do not exist. And so then anybody that talks about paranormal phenomenon or supernatural phenomenon, when being approached with that from a materialist perspective, you have to either seriously be reductionistic with it, you have to seriously reduce it down, or you have to dismiss it as something else. And and it's really done in this sort of arrogant sort of way. So let me give you some examples. Uh, when we talk about people who have relationship with a deity, it doesn't have to be Jesus or Christ, but it could be anything that is non-physical. But since we come from a Christian background and Western Christian, Western Christianity has formed our thinking and it's the religion that we're most familiar with, then we can talk about uh, people who have a relationship with God, people who pray, people who talk to God, people who have a relationship with Jesus. And we just talk about how well they've created their own imaginary friend they're just hanging out with their imaginary friend uh and then we do the same thing with evil uh the devil doesn't exist and we force our materialistic interpretations back onto ancient readings not just of scripture i'm going to use scripture because that's what we're most familiar with but understand that materialism was not has not been the predominant worldview or the predominant philosophy of humanity like ever until now um so we'll go back to the bible and we'll read about demonic possessions and we'll say well that was just mental illness they didn't have words or terms for it then 
So we know there was nothing spiritual that was happening there. There were no real demons. There were no real demonic entities. There is no real devil. Um, that all just was mental illness that they couldn't explain. And so because they couldn't explain mental illness, they had this antiquated, outdated worldview. So those poor, ignorant, ancient people that didn't know what we know today. So we take that frame and we force it onto scripture reading and we say it's materialistic. Same thing happens in the UFO community because you look at they'll, they'll, they're really it's really popular in UFO lore or the UFO community to look at the Bible, to look at Yahweh or some of the things, some of the experiences and phenomena that are talked about in the scriptures. Specifically, I'm thinking of Ezekiel chapter one and Ezekiel's wheel within his wheel, wheel within the wheel, that he's seeing some kind of advanced future technology, be it an alien technology, be it human beings who learned time travel and came back, uh, from the future, but at the end of the day, it has to be a material, it has to be matter, it has to be material technology, and there are similarities, I understand, between what Ezekiel experiences and what people in the Bible talk about that they experience, and what's in the UFO literature and UFO lore. And even UFO, like abductions or sightings or things like that, kind of gets shoved to the side by the academic community in a lot of ways, in sort of an arrogant kind of way that again is forcing a philosophy or a worldview on the experience. So here's what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting that there is a lot of phenomenon that we do not understand, that we cannot explain. And when we cannot explain that phenomenon, instead of just being comfortable in the question, or instead of just being comfortable in the fact that maybe there we don't know everything, and that not everything can be explained by, in this case, scientific materialism, we instead of just being comfortable there, instead of uh, allowing the <clears throat> experiences and phenomena to rest on their own merits, and then explore that, explore that phenomenon. What is this? How do we explain this? Why do so many people claim to have experienced very similar type phenomenon when they've never met each other? They didn't know that this stuff was out there, um, etc. You see what I'm saying? So we just dismiss the phenomena, or we dismiss the experience of thousands or maybe millions of people. We dismiss the experiences recorded for us that other people down through history claim to have had, and we just sort of arrogantly dismiss that as, well, we know that materialism is right, so that can't be. That has to be just imagination. That has to be just something that they made up, not in, not really any different than what how a novelist or a fiction writer makes up characters and makes up the interactions that are happening and makes up the plot and makes up the stories. And so this is all made up. This is all imagination. You see what I'm saying? And so my topic for today is what or who, <laughs> what or who is out there sort of behind, beyond the veil or beyond materialism. In other words, it's really funny because a lot of hardcore atheists make the same mistakes that they, they have the same type of circular reasoning that theists have or that Christians have. So to make to oversimplify this a little bit, if my assumption, as it was for many years, is that the Bible is the word of God, that God exists out there and the Bible is there to tell us 
who God is and how God is and what God is like. And then it tells us who we are and what we're like and how we should be in the world and how we should live in the world. And then we try to convince other people that that is true. Then we have to keep going back to the Bible. So it's like, well, I know this because the Bible told me, right? Well, how do I know that the Bible came from God? Well, because the Bible tells me that it came from God. I know that the Bible itself is inspired by God because the Bible itself tells me that it's inspired by God. Now, materialists do the same thing. They just begin with a different set of assumptions. It's really not that much different than monotheism. The attitude of the monotheist, of the Christian or uh, any of the, you know, great faiths of the Western tradition, the Abrahamic faiths, monotheistic faiths, we say there is only one God. <laughs> There's only one God. Materialists come back and say, there's only matter. There's only materialism. There's only that which can be quantifiable, measurable, and observable. And there's only laws that govern this universe. And eventually we'll discover what laws are governing this phenomena over here, these phenomena over here. And because it can't be ghosts, it can't be demons, it can't be God, it can't be angels, it can't be Jesus, because if matter is the fundamental uh, nature of reality, then everything else has to be the byproduct of matter. Everything else has to be the byproduct of these particles and waves and whatever else interacting, creating causes and effects. Because there is nothing else. But again, that's an assumption. So instead of taking phenomenon and removing it from those assumptions, we do this sort of circular reasoning. So the Arthur C. Clarke quote is absolutely the same kind of circular reasoning that magic is just science that we haven't discovered yet well that's built on the presupposition that science or matter is all that there is and science can explain everything well how do i know that because i believe that <laughs> and i can point to all these proof texts i can point to all these uh you know breakthroughs and uh, quantum physics or or newtonian physics or Whatever I want to point to, papers, academic papers, if I even go to that place. Most people don't have never read an academic paper in their life unless they have uh, higher education. I'm just saying most people never have. And most people haven't read an academic paper since you got out of higher education. So a lot of people don't even know how to read that stuff. So we're operating, again, on a lot of assumptions and a lot of presuppositions, and then we're getting caught in the same kind of circular reasoning, only instead of there only being one God, now there's only matter, there's only materialism. All right, so I'm beating a dead horse because I'm trying to get to this. What is out there? Because here's the thing. A lot of people have, going, going all the way back, going all the way back centuries, People have believed in gods. They have believed in angels. They have believed in demons. And they have written their accounts or their encounters with these beings and entities that, at least as far as we can tell, do not appear to take on a physical form. They don't take on something that's measurable. They don't take on something that's quantifiable, yet for these people, those experiences are very, very real. And again, this isn't an isolated incident in the history of humanity. The whole shamanic tradition is based on the idea that there's another invisible world out there 
and the shaman is able to go into those invisible worlds and by creating effects in those invisible world invisible worlds or by creating causes i guess you could say in those invisible worlds then the effects show up in the physical material world where the effects can be measured where the effects can be observed where the effects can be quantifiable albeit maybe they're not repeatable and they're in lies the rub although it may be repeatable it's not like it isn't it's just not as static or as stable as people in the materialistic camp want it to be if that makes sense so <clears throat> you've got the shamanic tradition you've got uh folk magic any magical system so one of the things that i did when i began to realize some of the toxicity that was in scripture and some of the toxicity that was in christianity and some of the problems with it some of the problems with the bible so i'm looking for this alternative path so i kind of became this spiritual tourist and i've been on record as saying this and again this is just me this is just my journey i'm not saying what's right or wrong for someone else but the eastern religions the eastern perspectives doesn't hold a lot of sway for me if for no other reason because i realize that i am in a western culture and i'm able to appreciate the vast difference between the way a psyche gets shaped and formed psychologically consciously and subconsciously in the east versus the way my psychology gets developed here in the west so we want to condemn christian ministers or missionaries and there's a lot of colonialism and a lot of racism involved with mission work absolutely i'm going to say that again because i feel like i just sent shockwaves through the internet there is a lot of colonialism and racism involved in western um Christian mission work because we go and bring our culture to a group that did not grow up in that culture. It's not their worldview. It's not what's shaped their collective unconscious. It's not what's shaped their subconscious. In other words, the symbols are different. The meanings are different. The overarching philosophies, like I was saying, that basic fundamental idea of reality is completely different in the East than in the West. So for me to adopt Buddhism, for me to adopt even uh I mean I'm okay, I'm okay with importing certain ideas, but even to adopt yoga in its traditional forms of um uh, working with the chakras and raising the kundalini power up my spine and all that stuff, basically I'm doing to myself in my view what Christian missions has done to people from other cultures and i don't think that that is conducive or the best thing for the formation uh and growth of my own soul and my own life i i think it could potentially and carl jung talked about this um i think he wrote a whole book about this because when theosophy was gaining ground which was a way of thinking about the world that was made popular by Madame Blavatsky a woman named Madame Blavatsky had a huge impact on the western world and she was importing uh eastern philosophies and eastern practices back um 
at the turn of the last century. So this predates like the 60s when this stuff became more popular, but it definitely laid the groundwork for that so that the Western world could become receptive to that. So Carl Jung notices these practices coming over and he writes a critique of it about how different the Eastern consciousness is from the Western consciousness. And so we're introducing foreign elements into our consciousness. And he said it was almost like poison. Now, the great esoteric writer, Dion Fortune, in her book, The Mystical Kabbalah, she makes the same statement. She says that as Western people, we really shouldn't mess around too much with Eastern imports. And she's trying to pull people back into the Western esoteric tradition of Hermeticism and Kabbalah and saying you can get to the same place with Western esotericism and Hermeticism and Kabbalah. So those were some other people that had those critiques. Now that wasn't, that was an idea of my own. Like I don't want to import this stuff because I don't think that I, that my, I, I don't think it's going to be the most helpful thing for me. Now, I'm not saying that it's poison. I'm saying that Carl Jung said it was poison. <laughs> And you can do without what you want. Because, uh, again, they're writing, both Dion Fortune and Carl Jung are writing when these things are first coming over. So we've got a century or more <clears throat> since then, or almost a century since then, to evaluate the value of things like Buddhism, Hinduism, and stuff like that. So all that to say, I pretty much left that stuff alone. But what I did dig into was the magical systems from the West, all kinds of different magical systems. So I already mentioned hermeticism, ceremonial magic, left-hand path magic, uh, folk magic, Celtic magic, Nordic magic. Um, mm, what am I forgetting? Wicca. How could I forget that? So I just was exploring these paths. Shamanism is exploring that. Shamanism held sway with me for a long time because it's the oldest version of spirituality known to humanity. And the one thing that, that all of these systems not only have in common, but that all of these systems are absolutely dependent upon is interaction and encounters with spirits. And so as I was thinking about this, that this week, I was thinking, you know, you, you can, you can appear, you, you can be fashionable, you can be acceptable, you can be intellectually accepted. If you talk about paranormal phenomena <coughs> from the perspective of mind over matter. So if you talk about the placebo effect, if you talk about some form of physical healing that happens in your body based on belief or based on resolving emotional issues. We saw this a lot when I was in ministry. We would see people resolve emotional issues. And once their emotional issues were resolved, their physical issues would clear up because of that mind-body, that brain-body connection, right? I suppose we could even talk about things like levitation or telekinesis. Telekinesis being being the, able to move something with your mind. Uh, levitation, obviously, is a phenomenon recorded around the world that people that spend a lot of time in meditation and spiritual practice reportedly, you know, mystics are able to perform. Uh, I know that probably sounds ludicrous and crazy to some people. Uh, so what I'm trying to say, as long as we keep it within that materialistic framework, because materialism has no idea what to do with consciousness, it has no idea what to do with the mind, because the mind primarily produces qualities that cannot be quantified. So in other words, the taste of coffee can be explained 
but not really quantified. Love, the feeling of love. Why do I like coffee and other people don't like coffee? Does it even taste the same to both of us? In other words, if you were me for a day and you drank coffee, would it taste the same as when you wake up in the morning and drink coffee? We have no way of knowing that. Do you see red the way that I see red? I don't know that we have really concrete ways of knowing that. But my point is we have to recognize conscious experience, even the most basic things about our conscious experience. And science has no clue. Not even a good hypothesis, not even a good experiment or mathematical equation to explain the problem of consciousness. But we can't deny that it's not there, right? So you go back to the philosophers like Rene Descartes, who said, you know, the one thing I can be certain of is that I am because I am the thinker. I am the experiencer. That's the one thing I can be certain of. So this problem of consciousness, but now within materialism, we can recognize thoughts and emotions and generally it's accepted that our thoughts and emotions have no impact on our bodies and no impact on the world around us in a cause effect tangible way but we can be open to laws of attraction we can be open again like i said to the placebo effect we can be open to telekinesis and things like this but don't start talking about extra physical entities don't start talking about extra physical entities don't start talking about Autonomous units of consciousness, sentient beings that have no occupation in time and space. That's just made up BS. That's all that is. That's, that's the approach. That's the attitude. And yet when you look at, like I said, these other spiritual, spiritual systems, they depend upon other physical entities. They depend upon other sentient beings being out there and interacting with them. (coughs) Whether they're nature spirits, whether they're gods and goddesses, whether it's God or source, whether it's angels or archangels, even in the UFO phenomenon, if you watch uh, Dr. Stephen Greer's latest documentary, I think it's his latest, Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, Close encounters of the fifth kind are non-physical contacts with aliens or what they call aliens. In other words, there are, there is something out there that is sentient, that is other than just my consciousness, but that interacts with me on a sort of telepathic or mental level. Now you start Talking about that, that sounds too much like religion. That sounds too much like that's going to blow everybody's circuitry. And more than likely, if you've got a strong materialist, you're going to get a lot of pushback on that. Uh, they, it is really kind of comes from a condescending way, not too much different than saying, uh, oh, well, they're blaming all their problems on a phony devil or they're blaming all their problems on, I'm sorry, they're blaming all their problems on a phony devil and they have created a relationship with their imaginary friend, Jesus. But again, I want to point out, this is a phenomenon. So even in the beginning of the 20th century, uh, you had this, the, spirit, the spiritualist movement, the spiritism movement. Now, that's an interesting movement because it got started uh, way, way back, a couple of centuries before the 19th, or I'm sorry, before the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century, by a group of Quakers who interacted with the native peoples in 
what they were calling Celtic realms, a geographical region in the United States that was considered to be a thin place. What's a thin place? A place where the veil between the worlds, between the worlds inhabited by non-physical conscious entities and the world inhabited by physical conscious entities, where it's very open, it's very transparent, it's very thin. Like I said, the Celtics call it the thin places. And they began to interact with spirits. They began to interact with ghosts. They began to interact with people who had departed. And so through this tradition that kind of spread um, through American culture, by the time the late 19th or early 20th century comes around, you have people doing seances. But this goes back to Abraham Lincoln. We know <clears throat> from writings and stuff that Abraham Lincoln and his wife routinely conducted seances at the White House. There are there are certain parts. Uh, Mitch Horowitz does a good job of bringing this out in his book, Occult America, of where Lincoln made claims that even strategies about the Civil War came to him through non-physical entities. It's pretty well known that he dreamt about his death, uh, I can't remember, but shortly before it happened. So there's this paranormal phenomenon that goes all the way back to the Civil War, all the way back to one of our great heroes, right? Abraham Lincoln. Well, was he just playing with his imaginary friends? Now, I know what some of you are thinking out there about like seances and stuff like that because it's been debunked, right? The, the people that were psychic mediums that were talking to the dead and they were manifesting these physical phenomena to get people's attention, like the shaking table or something levitating and things like that. And so starting with Harry Houdini, there, uh, grew up this entire tradition within uh, stage magicians, illusionists, of debunking any of that type of thing. And so Harry Houdini started that. He was very effective at that. And then you've seen that carried on even to people. Um, I can't think of the contemporary <clears throat> guys. But I saw something recently where even Chris Angel, uh, the last few years, was debunking extra physical phenomenon. He's just falling into that same tradition. Now, there was a stage magician that's not as well known as Houdini called Paul Foster Case, who was an occultist and has tons of occult writings out there, including uh, coming from his own Rosicrucian and uh, ceremonial magic philosophy and system interacting with archangels and things like that. So I don't know why I got off on all of that. <laughs> oh, because I was just talking about this, this, you know, going all the way back to the 20th century and seances and things like that. So what do we do with all this paranormal phenomenon with entities that cannot be physically measured or quantifiable or even proven. <laughs> Do we just dismiss it outright? Or what is who or what or who is out there? Now I'd like to propose a different way of viewing the world, which was the dominant way of viewing the world in Western culture until about 
late 19th or 20th century into the 20th century. And this would be a, a philosophic, philosophical system known as idealism. You can think about, if you know anything about Plato, Plato's ideas. Um, idealism says that the fundamental nature of reality, the fundamental thing out of which everything is made and out of which we experience is not matter at all. It's not material at all. In fact, no, no thing out there really exists. I'm not saying there isn't something out there. I'm just saying that the way we perceive it is not the way it is. That's what idealism is suggesting. And idealism would suggest that mind or consciousness is the fundamental building block of reality. Now, I like this so much better, and I'll tell you why. Because if mind or consciousness is the fundamental building block of reality, if consciousness itself is the stuff that's out there, then that can explain matter better than, in my view, matter can explain the spontaneous emergence of consciousness. Materialism has the problem of consciousness, but idealism does not have the problem of matter because everything is mind and everything is consciousness. And so if that's true, if that's true, then what that means is that that there is life after death. See, materialism, in a sense, frees you from your fear of death. And especially in the Western psyche and in the Western consciousness. And so you can understand why this has taken such strong hold in our culture and in our society, because we have had a religious system that has a God up in the sky who's very unpredictable and who's very angry and who's very judgmental. The primary paradigm in Western Christianity, the primary way of seeing Western Christianity is through a system of of laws and governance. In other words, we took our, our our civilizations and rule of law and punishment and reward, and we projected that out onto God so that our God concept, whatever is out there. See, what I'm saying is, is if consciousness is the fundamental nature of reality, then it's not crazy to say that God exists or that God created everything or that God's holding all things together. We may not like that term because we relate it to the God that we knew in our childhood or the God that we knew in our churches. And we say, hey, he's not a very nice guy. He wiped out all these people. He killed all these people. Uh, he did all these crazy things. And then we're living under this juridical law system that we project onto God. And we say, God is like a king. God is like a judge. God is like a Lord. And we are his subjects. We are his servants. We are his children. Use any kind of uh, metaphor that you want to that Christianity uses. And it all has some kind of governing principle rule-based, obedience-based principle behind it. If God is a father, then that is a family structure and government, and we are his children, therefore we are his subjects, therefore we are to be obedient children. If he is Lord, then we are his subjects, we are his citizens, and we owe him honor, or we owe him Something because he is our Lord. If he is our king, we owe him submission. We owe him honor. We owe him worship. We owe him obedience. And there are laws. And then if God is judge and God is just 
then at the end of the day, we are subject, our lives, every aspect of our lives become scrutinized by this judge. And this is one of the most unhealthy things in Christianity because we're taught that our imagination, if you lust after a woman in your mind, if you get angry with your brother or sister, uh, you're in danger of hellfire. We're told this. We're told the good that you should have done but you didn't do. That's also sin in the book of James. We're told that we'll give account for every action done in the flesh. We're told we'll give account for every word that we speak. So what the Christian vision of God does, or what the Christian vision of that God says, is that when you die, there is going to be a judgment. It's appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment. And even if you accept Jesus, and even if you believe in forgiveness of sins, we're still taught we have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I hope I'm not triggering uh, a bunch of Christians out there. I'm just, I'm trying to get the point across as to why materialism is so, uh, appealing to people when they come out of Christianity because you're going to have your entire life examined and then you're going to be judged for it and potentially punished for it and potentially punished for it for all eternity. Or if you're Catholic, you're at least going to be punished for it through some kind of purgation or purgatory period. Or if you're Eastern Orthodox, those kinds of faiths. And then we have this uncertainty to know how can we even know how to escape it. We'll just accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, right? But at the end of the day, we have this fear of the judgment that's coming. We have this fear of accountability and oversight for every word that we say. Can you imagine that? Every Being scrutinized over every word that you said, every action that you did, that's horrific and horrifying. And then this idea that, 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 that hell and eternal conscious torment might be waiting for you. So materialism says that God doesn't exist. Materialism says there is nothing after death because matter is all that is. And my mind and my consciousness and my brain is merely the byproduct of chemical reactions and electrical reactions inside the brain, even though there is not a good hypothesis for how that works. There's no mathematical formula for it. There's nothing that science can produce. So again, we're operating on an assumption. But if matter is all there is and there is no God, then I, then as soon as I die, that's it. Lights out and who cares? Because I won't have any consciousness at all to remember what happened. So it takes away the fear of death. It's addressing the fear of death just like Christianity was addressing the fear of death. It's just addressing it in a different way. Once again, instead of it being monotheism, there's only one God. It's it's monomatterism. Matter is all that matters. Matter is all that there is. And because matter is all that there is, when this matter dies, when this material dies, when this tissue dies, lights out. Idealism says, on the other hand, if consciousness is the fundamental building block of reality, then your consciousness, my consciousness, is going to remain intact at the point of death. So my point here is the creator, under the Christian version, under the Christian version, the creator, the source, the originator of all that is, if it's consciousness, that would be God. What we did with this is we projected all this human stuff <laughs> that I just mentioned, king, lord, judge, laws, obedience, judgment, hell. That's all just creation that we, of our, of our society. It's an anthropomorphizing. It's taking human elements and it's projecting it onto whatever being is outer. <laughs> 
But then this would also provide, this philosophical system also provides explanations for these encounters that people have had that are authentic encounters. Sure, there's charlatans out there. Sure, there's people faking it. But that's not everybody. Not everybody's profiting off of it. Not everybody's exporting it. But millions of people around the world today have had these kinds of experiences. I've had these kinds of experiences. I've had these kinds of experiences. Not just not just healing or miracles or I talked a couple of weeks ago about the butterfly that just sort of spontaneously manifested in the middle of winter that I have no explanation for. Uh, not just that type of stuff, but one of the things that began to happen was the more I began to meditate, the more I began to pray, the more I be- began to extend my consciousness out there beyond in, in a transpersonal way, meaning beyond what you would call my ego or my normal sense of self, my normal waking consciousness. The more I began to encounter things that I did not expect. And a lot of the things that I encountered that I did not expect were other beings beings, presentations of consciousness. Let me explain it this way. Presentations of consciousness interacting with my consciousness that is only taking place in the realm of consciousness. Beings of consciousness that are interacted with my consciousness on the plane of consciousness. So in other words, I'm not going to sit here and try and make anybody believe that a physical measurable entity that I used to know as Jesus appeared to me in my room. Any more than I'm going to try to make people believe that after my mom passed away, a being that could be measured in time and space appeared at the foot of my bed in radiant garments. Or that the angels, what I would call angels that I saw and interacted with, were real in the physical, measurable, quantifiable sense. But that doesn't mean the experiences weren't real. Just depends on how we define reality. And this became a thing. I mean, one of the things that happened, which is really interesting, is... uh, I began to interact with what I understood to be angels, light beings, that would manifest themselves to me. This is where I'm going to lose a lot of people. <laughs> and and then there would be tangible results that would happen. So, for example, I, I would. There were many times I'd be in services, and I could, with my mind's eye, not. In a physical, measurable, tangible way, I want to be very clear. I could see these light beings in a service. And I remember a, a number of times that this happened, <clears throat> people would come forward if they needed a touch of healing emotionally, mentally, physically, and just gently taking them by the hand and just guide them to where these beings were. And you could feel people would testify that they could feel an energy center there. They could feel a a heat or a warmth or like an electrical, just like definitely an energetic presence 
that was manifested that other people could testify to they felt the same thing and then walk somebody into that. And as soon as they get into that energy vortex, they would fall on the ground because we were Pentecostal. You know, we believe in being slain in the spirit. But for whatever reason, they would fall on the ground. And a number of them testified later that they got healed. I think I even remember uh, a young lady that could not conceive was told that she could not have children. And after that service, uh, not too long after that, she conceived. After encountering one of these entities, that used to happen a lot. So I'm kind of doing this interactive stuff with these light beings. Well, you're not supposed to do that back then because that could be an angel of light that's deceiving you and, and, uh, pulling you away from Christ. And I'm sure there's people out there. I got plenty of fans out there that believe that an angel of light has deceived me and pulled me away from Christ. Uh, for sure. So, so I go to a church in another state and I've kept these encounters pretty much to myself and i do a a a leadership conference that's off in the woods um i do a series of teachings on activity of angels in our lives and i talk specifically about this idea that there can be female angels there can be angels that represent the feminine qualities and i'll never forget uh, one of the leaders in that church just broke down and wept and pulled me aside. And he said, for the last several months, I've had a female angel, this non-physical entity that embodies feminine principles, appearing to me in my office. And in addition to that, I've also had someone appeared to me who had died that this person didn't know existed. He told him who he was, told him some things about his life and he Googled him, whatever, and found out he was a real prophet in the uh, 20th century. And the information he had gotten in this encounter was real. And he was afraid he was deceived of the devil or he was losing his mind. He didn't know what to say. And he was just sitting there, uh, just weeping because that message had liberated him for uh, <clears throat> those experiences. Now, here's the crazy thing. We, we close up. It's like a Friday, Saturday, and we're headed back to the church on Sunday morning. We get to the church early, and people start showing up at the church, children, grandparents, men and women in the church who had either had some kind of what they called an angelic encounter in prayer that morning, dreamt about angels that night, had some kind of encounters with angels. And out of that then, there were financial miracles, There were physical healings. There were people who received guidance. And that guidance led them into making good and wise decisions, good and wise choices. And they had a whole move that long surpassed the time that I was there. I'm not making this up. I'm not exaggerating. I'm just telling you. 
These, these have been my experiences. The whole deconstruction process got started for me because I was in meditation and I encountered an angel. Okay, that fits within my paradigm. But then I encountered <laughs> this non-physical, this, this being that was dressed in a black suit, kind of like Mr. Smith in the movie The Matrix with the sunglasses and everything, and speaking to me in a way that brought me tremendous guidance and benefit. So here's what I'm saying. This is a funny thing, right? Like, so you can get guidance and counsel from these non-physical entities, whether they're ancestors, whether you believe they're angels, whether you believe they're aliens that are communicating telepathically, whether you believe that they're whatever, you can call them my imaginary friends. But I'm just going to tell you something right now, and I'm dead serious about this. I'm deadly serious about this. Maybe I shouldn't say deadly serious. I've gotten better advice and guidance from some of my imaginary friends than I've gotten from real physical people. I've gotten better insights. I've known about future events before they would happen and told people or wrote them down. If you're uh, one of my friends out there, you don't believe in this stuff, you're a materialist. When was the last time you were able to give someone guidance based on future knowledge that you had no way of knowing? And then they took your advice and it worked out just exactly the same way you said it was going to be. So in that sense, if it's an imaginary friend, I think I'll keep it. And you can, you know, make it that what you want. Um, so I'll probably pick up on this. The, the last thing I'll say, the last thing I'll say is that academically even in the studies of religion and comparative religion, in the studies of, uh, uh, <clears throat> parapsychology, there is a difference. They, they distinguish between that, which is imagination or imaginary and that was which is imaginal. They distinguish between that which is imaginary and that which is imaginal. So in other words, what I'm saying is, there is no, absolutely no denying that what was occurring with me, with God, Jesus, angels, spirit guides, was happening through an interaction in consciousness. In other words, not that it's happening in the imagination. I just say it that way. It's happening in the imagination. No question. I'm not trying to get anybody to believe that there was anything physically, measurably, quantifiably out there. It was happening in the realm of the imagination. And that's actually, when you do a comparative study, that's what happens in a shaman's shamanic journey. That's what happens to 
the prophets in the Bible. Isaiah sees and hears and feels, tastes things in the spiritual realm, things in that other dimension. So this is why people have these encounters, and they, especially if they're locked into a materialistic framework, well, that was just my imagination. That was just my imagination. I'm making this up. See, making this up would be imaginary. Imaginal would be, it's the same processes. It has the same qualities of experience as a dream or the same qualities of experience as a daydream or whatever the case may be here. So it's happening in that imagination realm, but, but that doesn't mean there isn't something out there that you're interacting with. And I'll pick up on this in another time, but part of the problem, part of the problem is if it's happening in consciousness, which it is, because we can make it up imaginary, then when it's going on in the imaginal realm, we're also participating in some way in the process. We are also creating something in the process. So, Whatever's out there, I might see it as Jesus or might have seen it as Jesus, whatever I was interacting with. Whatever I was interacting with, I might have seen as an angel because I'm bringing the products of my culture and my cultural map into the experience. Whereas perhaps a a native shaman might encounter something else out there. But it's not going to be dressed in white. It's not going to look like a Western uh, concept of what or who is out there. It's going to look more like a nature spirit, or it's going to look more like an ancestor, or it's going to, whatever. A light being, a heavenly being, a skywalker, whatever. Because at some level we are participating, but that doesn't mean that there's not communion. In fact, that's true communion, because I'm bringing my part to the experience and the other being is bringing their part to the experience. And together we're mutually creating what's happening in the imaginal realm so that there's true communion. The problem is that we've mistaken the map for the territory. We've mistaken what we've created out there. And we've said, because I've had this experience, because this has been created and this has enriched my life, therefore this gives me some special authority to talk to you and force my beliefs and my perceptions onto you. And that's the problem. Because for the most part, these experiences, just like my friend that had a female angel that was meeting with him, these are very personal encounters and very personal experiences. But because it's part of the imaginal, because it's part of consciousness, if we adapt ourselves or adopt for ourselves a materialistic philosophy, you will completely close the door on having any kind of those encounters in the future because your belief system will not give you what you need. It will not give you your part that you need to bring into this communion with what's out there in order to participate in having the experience.
I hope that's helpful. I want to look, look through some of these comments. Um, several good mornings there. Uh, let's see. Oh, what happened here? Oh, Ben says, uh, one of the Sunday, one of, one of essential, uh, Sunday rituals is turning into your lives. Thank you, man. Um, uh, Wichita Lineman 46, amen, mate. Best decision I ever made was to major in philosophy. I was, it was the one subject that helped me navigate a happy, successful life. Which is now in its 77th year. Good for you. That's awesome. Joe Mashuda agrees, you know, that we're here to deal with Western spiritualism, hermeticism, those kinds of things. Shannon says, if we're sentient, why can't there be other sentients that manifest differently? having trouble. There was one I wanted to address, I know for sure. Sorry, I'm getting too old, I guess. <laughs> Elle says, do you think there are other similar planets, worlds, realities with the same materialism? Um, I outright reject materialism as fundamental to the universe. So, um I'm not sure, I'm not sure what you're asking there, L, uh, or how to respond to that. Um, that maybe, maybe you're asking, are there other planets and worlds that have the same idea of materialism? And I suppose that's possible. Maybe a retreat on angel beings. Excellent teacher Christina says that would be kind of cool, actually. Jeanette, who was in our church, she says, I remember all the angelic encounters. Um, I've had many of my own before and after that. So she's talking about the corporate angelic encounters that we were having um, in our church. <laughs> Joe says, uh, me too. My imaginary friends have been very important to me. Elegance says, I've never experienced anything like you're describing, even when I was deep in Christianity. And even since I've deconstructed and embraced oneness and began meditating how can I experience this too? Thanks, L. I hope you'll keep watching. Maybe, um, if you haven't subscribed to my channel, um, because I'm going to do more on this. I really feel the freedom and the liberty to, to do more on this. And, uh, one of the reasons I haven't shared my experiences, uh, very openly or very publicly is because I never want other people to feel like somehow they got gypped or they're less than because they didn't have those experiences. Uh, or I never want people to put me on a pedestal ever again um, because I was having those experiences because it's just really negative. Um, let's see, Donna says, I can resonate with that, Aaron. I had a brother who died a couple of months short of his 21st birthday. I was a young teenager, and I was able to experience him if he were still around. We even spoke at one time after which the manifestation happened within minutes, after she told me what was happening, I can tell of many instances. So a lot of people can. Um, all right. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. I hope it was helpful for you. Um, I know it was helpful for me. And, uh, yeah, we're going to do more of this on this channel. If you haven't subscribed to my YouTube channel, be sure to go out and subscribe because I'll be dropping new content. Also, if you want to support our work, I have a link in the description 
or you can make a donation to our PayPal. Again, any amount helps. Um, the response has been great, and uh, that's going to help us continue to create this content and even more content. And then, as someone suggested in the chat, put together, like, some retreats or even, like, Zoom retreats where we can go more deeply into this kind of stuff and uh, activate these kinds of things for people who are looking for them and are hungry for them. So anyway, hope everybody has a great day. Whatever time you're watching this, I hope you're well. Be safe, be good to one another, and I will see you next time.